0: Well, I know it says Revelation seventeen. Well, that's that's where we've been for a while. It's our kind of our fourth week in in this in this chapter. I want to uh, take a uh, kind of a step back a little bit and use this time today to review a few things that we've we've looked at, uh, and at the same time uh, fill in certain gaps that, um, you know, there's always gaps when you teach prophecy. You know, there's, there's just so much in all of the major and minor prophets. And, and then there's the book of Revelation. And then there's the comments that Paul makes and Peter that all ties into it, into it all. So you can't say everything at one time. Now, I also know that you can't say everything... Uh, in four times, you know, so we've been we've been in this chapter, this is our fourth week, and it can't say everything in the fourth week, you know. Now, if we stay here for a while, we might be able to say just about everything, but then we never finish the book of Revelation, that's really kind of a goal that I have. It's always nice when we finish a book, isn't it? But uh, hopefully, the studies that we have in the book of Revelation will kind of linger on as we look at the world events. Uh, that are taking place and, uh, and, and compare them with what's going on in Scripture. And more and more, as we'll see in one Scripture from the book of Daniel that we're going to read here in just a moment, I think really summarizes what we as a church are going through in learning about what is happening and who the major players are and why uh, they weren't known about... From the beginning, or at least when we started learning these things ourselves. So, Revelation 17, I'm going to read verses 12 through 18 because we're going to keep coming back to this for just a few more weeks. And I don't mean just in chapter 17, but also in chapter 18 because 18 really, once we get this chapter established and 18 itself uh, kind of plays itself through uh, pretty quickly. Well, we begin with uh, verses 12 through 18, and let's read those through. It says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with a beast. Now, this all may sound like, shouldn't we read the first 11 verses? We've, we've read them a lot, and uh, you can read them back yourself and make the ties into this. What we've been dealing with, of course, is that new character that's mentioned at the beginning, which is the uh, Mystery Babylon uh, the Great, the mother of harlots and of, of the abominations of the earth. And how the, the beast that she is riding, of course, being, of course, the spirit of Antichrist or the Antichrist and the beast as well, with all of its designations of kings and of, of heads and of horns and all of that, those are, the, those are the issues that we're trying to define in light of all the rest of the scriptures. So we're beginning to open that more. We'll open a little bit today. So that's where we're at. These ten horns on this particular beast. Uh, again, it says the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Uh, these are of one mind and they will give their power and authority uh to the beast. So whatever kingdoms are being represented here, as we said, there's there's the uh the seven heads and then the the seven kings, the seven mountains, which are the kingdoms themselves and the kings of those mountains. And then there are these ten, which again we have to we're going to come back to this a little bit later and and redefine some of those things. Uh, these will make war with the Lamb. Now this is really important. These will make war with the Lamb. So whoever or whatever it is that is the spirit of Antichrist in the the days to come where these nations are now bowing submitting to this particular beast, as it were, they're going to get into war with Jesus. Because this is the Lamb of God that it is speaking of. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. These will make war with the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. And then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Of course, meaning then, of course, the sea of great, uh, of great multitudes and numbers uh, throughout the world. And the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot. Now this is interesting, isn't it? that uh, the ten horns that you saw in the bees, representing, again, certain nations, are going to hate the harlot. So, defining the harlot, we we haven't really gotten fully into that yet. We've talked about it a little bit, but we haven't really gotten to that fully. Uh, These will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. They don't really like her very much. But they're... God's enemies all the way around, as it were. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, notice, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth, which is the city of Babylon. Babylon. Not Rome. Babylon. There's a little, kind of a, idea, you have some beasts there, or a beast, a scarlet beast, with certain, certain of them have crowns on them, and there, of course, is a woman with a cup, and drinking the blood of the saints. So this, this description here is, is quite important, as we will see uh, later on. But one of the great prophetic books of the scriptures that gives us great details of the end times And more than sufficient fulfillment support to the book of Revelation is the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. Much is revealed to this prophet through the interpretation of dreams, in his great times of prayer, and the revealing of secrets by the Lord through night visions. And all of this during the reigns of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius the Mede, and, and it's a long, long period of time that uh, Daniel is allowed this this uh, ministry in Babylon, because that's where he is. He's he's with. The, he begins with Nebuchadnezzar in the, during that uh, that time of the uh, uh, of the Babylonian uh, conquest. Of, of Israel and of, of Jerusalem. And Daniel is there in Babylon. And after all of this, after all of the things that God does with Daniel, through Daniel, a word is given to Daniel that applies significantly to the last 40 years or so of biblical end time prophecy. And that is Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. I want you to notice what it says. It says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. In other words, we've been given all of these visions and dreams that he has interpreted, that God has used him to interpret, to give to these kings. But then he is told to shut these words up. In other words, close the book, as it were, for a time. He says, seal the book. Until the time of the end. Stop for just a moment and think. You seal the book until the time of the end, therefore we won't really understand. We'll have the words. We won't understand everything until the end. Because it is in the end that we will begin to see these things starting to take place. Now when we see the the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 that deals with Messiah... We're very convinced, and we know who it is that it's talking about. It's talking about Jesus. But then again, the Bible has been open to us already. So we are able to understand that. But here the prophet is given a book, and he says, close it to the end. In other words, it's full meaning. But then he says, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So many will run to and fro. Wanting to understand what all of these characters and symbols and and all will represent. But then knowledge shall increase. There will be a time when we may not understand everything, but the more we go in time into the end times, the more the knowledge increases for us to understand more of what is taking place. So for many years, even more than the last 40 years that I just mentioned, there were premillennial dispensational interpretations. I'm, I'm speaking primarily uh, fr- from the position that we normally take in, in biblical prophecy. A premillennial dispensational interpretation of the book of Revelation and of the major and the minor prophets that, uh, that placed a tremendous emphasis on the Antichrist spirit, the Antichrist himself, and the seed of Babylon as being centered anywhere but in the Middle East, that's the way the interpretations were for the longest time, because we didn't understand fully. Not everything had been put into place yet. Now, I'm not saying that it was never mentioned or never considered. I mean, you can go back to uh, you can go back to people like uh, Wesley, and you can go back to uh, uh, people even Calvin and, and, and others, uh, Matthew Henry. That, and this, of course, hundreds of years ago, that actually looked at scripture and said, you know, what they called Mohammedism, which is, of course, Islam, will probably play a tremendous role in the end time. But they didn't, that was about as far as they went in saying that. So, I'm not saying there was never mentioned that uh, Babylon itself would be. Considered somewhere in the Middle East. But I can tell you this, when, when, the, when the subject of the seven heads or the seven mountains uh, from our text here in, in chapter 17 would come up. Every time that would come up <clears throat> over the last 50 years as it were. But I was, I was on, on YouTube listening to other, you know, just kind of listening to people in this little passage about the seven heads and the seven mountains. Nearly everyone, as soon as they got to that point and that passage in the Scripture, they immediately went to Rome. They immediately went there and they said there's got to be the city of Rome because Rome is a city on seven hills. But we've already discussed that. We've already said it's not talking about hills. It's talking about mountains. And scripturally speaking and prophetically speaking, mountains represent kings or kingdoms. Rome doesn't sit on seven kingdoms. So, that's not to say that Rome and and the Vatican and, 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 and the Catholic Church doesn't have its problems. It does. But it isn't the seat of Antichrist. It isn't the seat of the devil. It isn't. And we've already covered that. But it would just come up immediately, like if it was just, it was just the way it was supposed to be. And this is, this is what I, what has burdened my heart is that when we take the text, we need to take the text all the way through. We can't be scripture talking. We need to be, we need to get into scripture text. Not scripture talk, but scripture text. Because it's the text that matters here. So nearly every Bible and prophecy teacher that I would listen to, without question, would mention Rome immediately. Let me just, like, just because it's seven hills. But as I said to you before, there's other cities with seven hills. How would you like Babylon to be in Texas? Because there's a city in, in, in Texas that's named the city of seven hills. But I don't think you'd want it to be in Texas. So this is the thing. We need to be, we need to be true to the text. Many did run to and fro because we were near the end. But they were looking westward and not eastward. They were looking westward and not eastward. Rome seemed likely because it was the capital of the ancient Roman Empire as well as the seat of the Vatican and and much research was done in connecting many of the Babylonian cultic religious practices to the Roman Catholic Church. Europe seemed the most likely place to birth a one-world government with a built-in one-world religion. And the most probable place from which an Antichrist could be birthed and usher in the end of the present dispensation would be west, not east. Besides, think about this. Adolf Hitler was a good candidate for a forerunner of Antichrist, wasn't he? He was a good, good candidate for a forerunner. As a matter of fact, many Bible pro- prophetic teachers, and I, and I agree with this, that, that Hitler was indeed a forerunner of Antichrist because of his hatred of the Jews. And I, and I say this uh, just primarily from all the research I've done on, on Adolf Hitler, but he was a man that was possessed. By the devil. There is no way that he could do what he did in the way that he did it and to blindside the millions and millions of people in in his country and blind them to follow him. Yes. A good candidate for Antichrist. So, Give me one second, please. Well, then came 1948, 1956, 1967, and 1973. Years of great prophetic significance. Let's consider, first of all, May, 1940, uh, May 14, 1948. Because on that day, the state of Israel was established. Now, we might say, well, it was established by one vote in the United Nations. Uh, some believe it was truly our vote that did that, the United States. But we know better. We know that the state of Israel was established on that day by God Himself. But let me give you another day in 1948. It's the next day. Because on the next day, after Israel was established as a nation, five Arab states invaded Israel. And they had one purpose and one plan, and that was to drive the Jews that were in Israel and who had established this state of Israel to drive them into the Mediterranean Sea. The president of Egypt that I'll mention in just a moment at that time uh, was, was quoted many times in saying that this is, was his desire, that Israel would be driven into the sea, into the Mediterranean. And so in in 1948 and 49, that was Israel's war of independence. And then uh, there were times, of course, uh, kind of an unsettled peace that was taking place. But in 1956, another date of importance, it was the Sinai campaign that took place where Israel fought to put an end to the terrorist incursions into Israel and to remove the Egyptian blockade of Eilat. Eilat is at the southern tip of Israel, there by the Red Sea. Now, in the course of an eight-day campaign, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, captured the Gaza Strip and the entire Sinai Peninsula. Uh, If you'll notice this little triangle down there that says Sinai Peninsula, and you see these little blue lines which were actually the advancement of the of the Israeli troop movements, there, the Sinai Peninsula. All of that was captured. It, it, it was actually uh, uh, seized and captured by by the Israeli troops, mostly by Israeli paratroopers in, in certain places. But all of those blue lines are the advancement of of the Israeli troops. And they halted 10 miles uh, into the Sinai Peninsula, east of the Suez Canal. Uh, A United Nations decision to station a UN uh, emergency force along the Egypt-Israeli border and Egyptian assurances of free navigation in the Gulf, Gulf of Elad led Israel to agree to withdraw in stages. So they began to withdraw back off of that peninsula from November 1956 to March 1957 from those areas taken a few weeks earlier. So consequently, the Straits of Tehran, which is down uh, down at the very bottom of the map, where it says Sharm el-Sheikh, right in there is the Strait of Tehran, uh, that was open. They had closed it before. The Egyptians had closed it so that Israel wasn't getting any kind of uh, exports coming in. Uh, and uh, so it enabled the development of trade with Asian and East African countries, as well as oil imports for, from the Persian Gulf. And then another date, and we, I'm just trying to move this on, this, this history lesson a little quickly here. 1967, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser closes the Straits of Tehran to Israeli shipping. So he closed it again. They had already closed it once before, before 1956. Now they, he closes it again. And, and this is one of the things that led to the Six-Day War that leads to the reunification of Jerusalem under Israeli rule, because at the time... The city of Jerusalem was was actually uh, being uh, overseen by both Israelis and the Jordanians. And the Jordanians had a lot more of the city than than, uh, uh, the the Israelis. So at the end of six days of fighting, and that was in June the 5th through the, the 10th of 1967. And I remember those days very well. I don't mind giving you my age on that one, exposing my age to you. But I remember those days very well. Because it was something that was being reported on TV every night. The attack of Israel by these nations around them. And the stand that men like Moshe Dayan and and others took for this small nation that was surrounded by enemies. But at the end of those six days of fighting, previous ceasefire lines were replaced by new ones, with Judea, Samaria, Gaza, the Sinai Peninsula, and the Golan Heights under Israel's control. And as a result, the northern villages were freed from 19 years of recurrent Syrian shelling. The passage of Israeli and Israel-bound shipping through the Straits of Tehran was ensured, and Jerusalem, which had been divided under Israeli and Jordanian rule since 1949, was reunified under Israel's authority. A few years, the same kind of thing going on, you know, a little bit of peace here and there, sometimes being attacked. Uh, By 1973, there was another war, a surprise attack on Israel by Egypt and Syria, the Yom Kippur War. Three years of relative calm along the borders were shattered on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, The holiest day of the Jewish year when Egypt and Syria launched a coordinated surprise assault against Israel beginning on the 6th of October. With the Egyptian army crossing the Suez Canal and Syrian troops penetrating the Golan Heights. Two years of difficult negotiations between Israel and Egypt and between Israel and Syria resulted in disengagement agreements according to which Israel withdrew from parts of the territories captured During the war. Now, there are many other dates and many other events significant to the modern state of Israel, but the important thing is, and I I bring all of this up because the important thing is that the focus returned to where it should have always been. The focus returned to where it should have always been. What did I say we were doing when we were going to and fro? We were looking westward, not eastward. Now we had to look. Now there was an Israel. Now there was an Israel that could help us to understand the fulfilling of Bible prophecies. Whereas those of the early 20th century and the late 19th century and much of the 19th century couldn't understand because there was no Israel. There was a land called Palestine. And while there may have been a few scattered Zionist uh, settlements. It wasn't a nation. It was desolate. There was nothing growing. Nothing happening. And then a, a very specific Bible prophecy took place. And that is found in Ezekiel 37. The prophecy of the rising up of the dry bones. And I can tell you this, if you've done any study at all in the Holocaust, it was out of the Holocaust that the nation of Israel would see the dry bones rise up and become alive again. And Israel is alive because God wanted it to be alive. And it saddens me that many, in, 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 uh, many a Christian or you know professing Christians do not love Israel. There are certain denominations today that, that say Israel is the aggressor. Israel is, 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 is they're the ones that are causing problems for those in the Gaza. Uh, you know, I'd like to put them all on a on a plane and send them over there to see the reality of what's going on in Israel today and has been for a long time. I mean, they're not perfect. I mean, they, they're, they're human. They, they're, they can make mistakes too. But here's the thing. As a nation and as a people, they, they want peace. They want peace. If an Arab goes into one of their hospitals, they will treat them they will take care of them. If there are Arabs who are hungry, they will feed them and provide for them. They do not ask. They just do it. That is not being reported in the news today. That's not what you see about Israel. And it's sad that People are becoming, in in the church, some some groups are becoming pro-Palestinian rather than pro-Israel. I'm not against the Palestinians, you know, even though, uh, you know, they're labeled that way and they have become pawns in a major, major game of chess. All I can say is this. I love Israel because God loves Israel. I want to support Israel because God wants us to support Israel. We're told... Pray for the peace of Yerushalayim. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which is praying for the peace of the very heart of Israel. We go to Israel. We spend time in Israel. We're encouraged by what we see. We should never stop praying for this situation. We should pray that those who are Palestinians and Arabs in that land would come to realize that the Messiah... Yeshua, Jesus, is for them too. He died for them. These are very important issues that we cannot uh, set aside. But to become overtly co- political and, and be on the side of, of, of those who are actually lying in many ways, to show that Israel is, 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 uh, is the aggressor, that's, that's a real lie. I don't know if you just read recently, I think the the last couple of days, there's been some attacks from the Gaza. uh, Bombs being sent over into Israel, into the southern part of uh, of Israel. Uh, Israel has to retaliate. All of a sudden they retaliate and then they become the, the ones condemned. But they're the ones that want peace. The focus has returned, if you will, over these past years that we've been talking about here. The focus has returned to where it should always have been, and that is the epicenter of the world, of all the world. The epicenter of the world is the Middle East, at the center of which is the state of Israel, and at the, state of, and the center of which is the city of Jerusalem, which is Mount Zion. Now, if you expand the borders of our understanding of the Middle East, you need to understand also that that is also the cradle of civilization. But if you go back to the book of Genesis, you realize the mention of Euphrates, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is significant because it was mentioned at creation. It was mentioned after creation in the book of Genesis early on. So now, biblically and prophetically speaking, the Word of God makes it clear that Israel is at the very center. uh, For out of Israel, the Messiah would come. Out of Israel, Messiah would come. And and you know what the phrase is? And you all know it. The seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. Where is that from? Genesis chapter 3. Let's turn there. I told you this was going to be a review. So we we need to come back here for just a minute. Because there's some gaps we need to fill in. There's some gaps we need to fill in. Genesis chapter 3 verse 9. It says, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Now, we already know what's happened before this. The beginning of chapter 3, the serpent speaks to Eve. And, of course, deceives her. Lies to her. Puts doubts in her mind about God. Did God really say? We'll talk about that lie and, and those lies in a moment. So we know what happened. After this, they, they, after, after this meeting with Eve, and, and Adam, you know, we talked about this back way long ago when we were talking about uh, uh, Genesis 3. Adam was right close by. He should have said something. He was the one from whom the woman came from his side. And he was commanded not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he said nothing. That is why he's the one responsible, usually, in the Scriptures. So we already know what happened. They ate of the fruit. So the Lord God called Adam and said to him, where are you? And so he said, I I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of of which I commanded you that... uh, that you should not eat. And the man said, The woman, <laughs> the woman whom you gave to be with me, she, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Passing the buck. That's what, it, that's, that's, what that's called. Passing the buck. Uh, so the man said, The woman you, whom you gave to me, you know, she gave me of the tree, and I ate, because she gave it to me. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, Oh, oh the serpent deceived me. So passing the buck, passing the responsibility, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, now, this is what I want you to begin to see. Alright, we already knew the other part. Because you have done this, God is speaking to the serpent, who is Satan. Because you have done this, you are cursed. More than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I want I want you to get a picture here. Eating dust all the days of your life. What does that sound like? El Paso, right? I mean... <laughs> no, what does it sound like? Desert. think about it got the picture all right just keep it now notice what he says and i will put enmity between you and the woman enmity between you and the woman what is enmity hostility animosity I will put hostility, animosity between you and the woman. The woman. I, I'm emphasizing this. I I really want to kick it at you. The woman. And between your seed and her seed, that New King James capitalizes the the, the second seed there. That 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 is to. Point out the fact that it is singular. That one particular word is singular in the Hebrew, not the other. That one word, singular, her seed. That is the first prophecy concerning Messiah. The prophecy concerning the coming of Messiah through the woman. And remember what we talked about in Genesis chapter 3. A woman with a seed. No, who carries the seed? Man carries the seed. Woman has the egg. So now this is pretty significant, is it? Is it not? Between your seed and her seed. Well, the devil has a seed also. Do you realize now that from Genesis to Revelation, the book that we call the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, is all prophecy? Wow. He shall bruise your head, which literally means he shall crush and pulverize your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We know what that picture is, isn't it? It prophesies the cross. It is on the cross that Jesus defeats Satan. But it is also on the cross that the heel of Messiah is bruised. And of course the symbolism is that he dies but rises again. But But Satan is destroyed completely. He's bruised. I mean, your head is just, you know. The heel was bruised. The Lord says, And I will put enmity, hostility, hatred, animosity, and antagonism between you, serpent, and the woman. It is the very spirit of Antichrist that fits this passage to a T. Not only is the spirit of Antichrist the most deceptive spirit ever to be, which receives numerous warnings in the scriptures against lying and deceiving. Think about that. All of the warnings against lying and deceiving. In one particular place, we're even told, you know, that liars will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's pretty scary. We're all like, oh, "What about that little white lie? Oh, I just, I just exaggerated a little bit, you know?" That, that. That's tough. Praise the Lord! You can go, Lord, forgive me, <laughs> Jesus. I don't want to do that anymore. Okay, don't do it anymore. But you know, that's the thing. That's what we—that's what we struggle with. You know, we struggle with that a lot. You know, the you know Daniel, the little little fish. You know, we caught here. By the time we get home, it's this big, right? How big was the one that you caught? Ah, it's about this big. <laughs> so we get these warnings about about deception and lying. Because it's, it comes from the very garden where Satan was. So, especially now in the latter days, this most deceptive spirit was introduced to us in that garden of Eden, warned about by Jesus Himself, and the warning was refortified by the Apostle Paul. Take for instance, go back to Genesis 3 verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? There's there's that first seed of doubt. Uh, And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, uh, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. She didn't quote it quite right, but anyway. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now, there's the second seed. You will not die. Is that not a lie? That's a major lie right there. The other was a deception. This was a major lie. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like Him. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He doesn't want you to be like Him. But you can be if you eat that fruit. Look at me. Everybody anybody ever wondered that, that you know the serpent had probably gone and tasted a little bit of that fruit himself? He didn't have to come to the garden to do it. If we understand Isaiah fourteen, Lucifer was the light of the sun of the morning decided that he wanted to be like God. So to some, to some extent, he already tasted of that fruit. God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so that is the ground of the lie. That is the inception of the lie. You want to call it the lie. That's what it is. But now Jesus, in John 8:44, he says, "You are of your father, the devil." And he's speaking to those who have stood in opposition to, to him, even though they have seen him do wondrous miracles and all. Nonetheless this is what he says to them. He says, "You are of your Father the devil, and the desires of your father you want." To do, He was a murderer from the beginning. Why was he a murderer from the beginning? Because he knew that if the man and the woman ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they were going to die because God said they would. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies but then Paul in 2nd Thessalonians 2 verses 9 through 12 he says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan the lawless one of course we would say is the antichrist the son of perdition the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. They look like wonders, but they're really just lying at you. They're deceptive. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. In essence, they did not receive it because they didn't want it. Because they had been deceived with these unrighteous deceptions. How many people today are being deceived with unrighteous deceptions in this life, in this culture, in this society, in this nation where we live. And they're being deceived that they're one thing or another, that they really aren't, and yet they don't want anything to do with God. They don't receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now, that's not up to us. We still are supposed to tell people about Jesus. We still need to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. But nonetheless, this is all about deception and the end time. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. The lie. Did God really say? No, He's not going to kill you. He just doesn't want you to be like Him. It's interesting that when we we come to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, He says, I'm going to work on you every day so that you will have the image of Christ and you'll be like Him. Isn't that interesting? He wants us to be like Him. But we first need to die so that Christ can live in us. But the lie is, He doesn't want you to be like Him. Now, we're not going to be like God. We're not going to be gods. Some people have said, Oh, see, we're little gods. No, we're not. There's only one God. There are no gods before Him. As a matter of fact, read Isaiah, please. Read Isaiah 42. There are no other gods before Him. I think there's one more verse here. Yeah. For this reason God will send them strong delusions that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That doesn't mean that they weren't given an opportunity to believe the truth or to hear the truth or to accept the truth or to receive the truth. God has given every opportunity. But some people just choose pleasure in unrighteousness. Alright, I've said all of that to say this. Ready? The spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist, as it has to be pointed out, has to be pointed out, is not only against Christ, but is also very much against women. Remember, just a few verses ago, We read that God said to the serpent that he would put hostility and animosity between him and the woman. Remember that? Well, this is very important to our understanding of the nature of the beast, the Antichrist, and the spirit of Antichrist. I want you to go back to the book of Daniel, because going back to the book of Daniel, we will find a number of markers that specifically identifies the Antichrist for us. These are some of the gaps we're filling. As a matter of fact, we're going to fill more gaps next time in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, chapter 17, which we will get back to next time. But these are very important markers for you to see that specifically identify the Antichrist for us. And the distinctions should lay to rest some of the interpretations that are actually missing the mark. And I'll, I'll explain them as we go. But, but one such marker we're going to find is in this passage called, or passage of Daniel 11, verses 36 to 39. So let's start with Daniel 11, verse 36. It's a long one. Anytime you see a little letter A there, that means there's a B coming right after. It's a long verse. But in Daniel 11:36 it says, "And the king shall do according to his own will." Now we are actually dealing here with Antichrist. So please listen carefully. Then the king shall do according to his own will. Doesn't that already sound like Antichrist? Doing his own will, not the will of God. Certainly. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. Sound familiar? It should. Sounds like Lucifer in in, uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and so on and so forth. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods. You see, there's only one God, and He is the God of gods. Any gods that we make, they're not going to stand because He alone is God. So He's called the God of gods here in that respect. Man doesn't want Him to be their God, therefore they're going to come up with their own gods. Yet He's over all of them because He'll destroy them all. So this is certainly a picture of Antichrist. And then it says, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, the wrath of God upon the enemy. For what has been determined shall be done. So uh, Daniel is just saying very clearly, and and really the prophecy from God to Daniel is, God's going to accomplish His his goal. He's going to accomplish His purposes. But notice this now. Now this is about Antichrist again. He shall regard neither the God of his father's, And you'll notice the little gods there, because that that word there is the word Elohim, but it is used in the context outside of the one true God in three persons that we know to be Elohim. So the word Elohim can also be used in a a very general, specific way. I'm, I'm sorry, in a very general way, not specific way, but in a general way. When it speaks of other gods, the word Elohim is used. That's why you have to look at the context of the words that are being used. So he shall regard neither the God of his fathers, or the gods, literally the gods of his fathers, nor the desire of women. You got it? You see that? The problem is that some people, again, have gotten into the Christian talk rather than the Christian text. Or, I'm sorry, the the Scripture talk rather than the Scripture text. Because some have said that he shall regard neither the gods of his fathers nor women. He does not regard women. But that's not what the text says, does it? Because there have been some people that have actually said, well, you know, somehow this, this Antichrist, again, looking westward, this Antichrist coming out of the revived Roman Empire, it's got to be from Europe, he's got to be, so, well, you know, one of those European nations over there, and, and the possibility is that he might be homosexual. Because he doesn't desire women. But that's not what it says. Do you see that? It's not what it says. It says, He shall regard neither the gods of his fathers, nor the desire of women. They did something else too with that first part. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers. And they they saw that and they said, Well, that must mean that he's a Jew. No. No. In the context, the word gods is the gods apart from the one true God. So he's not talking about a Jewish person. So he goes on. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers or the gods of his fathers nor the desire. He does not regard the desire or the desires of women. Nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. That's eventually what Antichrist is going to do and B, But in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses. I, I'll explain this. Just to make it quicker, I'll, I'll read it and then I'll explain it. In their place he shall honor a god of fortresses and a god which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. And thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god. He shall act against the strongest fortresses, which means... The strongest armies, which means he's not the strongest of armies. There's others stronger. With a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Now, there is one major religion in the world today that at its core has a tremendous animosity and hostility toward women. Need I say which one it is? It is the religion of Islam. Why this hatred towards women? Well, we read it clearly in Genesis chapter 3. The woman is to bring forth Messiah. That is simply it. The woman is to bring forth Messiah. Not by a man. Remember, Isaiah 7. That tells us that he is to be born of a virgin. And his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the only way that God can be with us. Not through a man but through God Himself, the seed of the woman. It is God who overpowered, in essence, that's the word that is used, but overcame and overpowered Mary, who was virgin. And then she was found to be with child, not by Joseph, but by by God. And she, of course, gave birth to Messiah. The very fact that a woman was to bring forth the the Messiah meant that most of the women in Israel uh, for centuries could I be the one that would bring Messiah into this world because that was the promise. So that is why in Galatians 4 verse 4 it says that the fullness of time at the very right moment is when Jesus came. Upon the very right person, who was Mary, who was in the line of David. you see. So the woman is to bring forth Messiah, the one who will conquer the great deceiver, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Jesus is the truth. You say, what What's the counterfeit? The lie? Jesus is the truth. Alright. Well, let's, let's go back now, because this, this is again a little review, but go back to Revelation 12 for just a moment, just so we can see the importance of what we have seen so far about the nature and spirit of Antichrist against women. Because it says in Revelation 12, verse 1, Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, With the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. It's not the Virgen de Guadalupe, I'm sorry. As much as we might think it is, it's not. not not in that particular form, okay? Not in that form. Understand. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Those are, those are uh, words or markers of prophetic uh, uh, prophetic happenings, so language. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Here's that guy again. And seven diadems or crowns on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, and they threw, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So, who is the woman? Israel. Israel. She bore a male child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and His throne. And then prophetically, in verse 6, then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. That we've talked about before back then in chapter 12. We'll talk about it more as we get to the end of chapter 18 and 19. These verses, as I said before, also clarify that Antichrist will not be European, nor will he be Jewish. Because in honoring a God of fortresses, this Antichrist will honor a God of war. Our God is not a God of war. Our God is a God of of life and a God of peace There's no question about that throughout scripture is he a God that is mighty he's almighty El Shaddai the almighty God the ever powerful God But we'll talk more about this a little later because there's a few more things that we want to add to those scriptures that we just read in Daniel. And we'll probably do that next time. But as always, the enemy will do all that he can to develop counterfeits to everything that God created to be good. And so, so part of Satan's plan then involved a counterfeit Messiah. So out of Babel or Babylon, as it were, and its counterfeit religion there would be the worship of mother and child. Now this is very important. Again, I, I, I teach this with all due respect to a lot of people's understandings about mother and child. Because we've been considering the main characters in this chapter of Revelation chapter 17. Primarily the great harlot who sits on many waters, committing fornication with the kings of the earth and the beast who will use the harlot until she is dumped for his own recognition and pleasure. So this this very counterfeit religion, as it were, that began in, 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 in Babel. Well, this Babylonian religious system that this harlot represents, from the Tower of Babel to the present day, continues to flourish not only in Islam primarily, but even in Christendom. And I tell you, there's a lot of differentiations between all the religions, you know, especially with Islam, because Islam is is, uh, very deceptive in a lot of ways, and we, we will talk about it more and more. But I want you to remember that any kind of, that religion of any kind, religion of any kind is always man's attempt at reaching God. If you hear the word religion, even though it is in Scripture, in the book of James, it is defined for us in the book of James that true religion, of course, is caring for, for uh, widows and orphans and, and, and taking care of those issues in their lives. But religion, as it is spoken of now and in our day and time, has to do with reaching to God. In other words, climbing and reaching God. Man's attempt at reaching God, or God's, or even some level of God's status. I mean, that's what Buddhism is. Buddhism does not believe in a personal God. They don't believe in God. They're, they're kind of an atheist religion, in essence. But that if you go through the steps of Buddhism, eventually you will become a god, which is actually the New Age movement. And again, the New Age movement, Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, with it's 7 million or so gods, and, and, and you just go down the list of all of these, they all go back somehow and some way to Babel or the Tower of Babel. But true Christianity, true Judeo-Christianity, you have to include uh, uh, the Jews and, and, and all, but true Judeo-Christianity is God coming to man to restore relationship with man who was created in God's image but was stained due to sin. And so Jesus had to come to deal with the sin issue. Well, with that in mind, let me just close with these, this, this this little thing that I want to fill in some gaps with some more there's a legend about Nimrod now we talked about Nimrod back in chapter 10 and 11 of Genesis and we brought it up a couple of weeks ago but Nimrod had a wife and again as legend has it her her name was Semiramis and Semiramis the wife of Nimrod bore him a child named Tammuz and this child legend has it, was killed by a wild boar. But after 40 days, he resurrected miraculously. During that 40-day time period, Semiramis, the mother, wept and mourned, not probably not eating very much or doing anything of that nature, lamenting the death of her son for 40 days. And from this, after the 40 days, and he rises from the dead, in essence, from this came what has become known as the worship of mother and child. Semiramis and Tammuz being the first as the pattern for other religions. Those 40 days seem to correspond, some believe, uh, to the 40 days of Lent in the Roman Catholic tradition. But this worship of mother and child, it's seen through art throughout all of history. But the worship has been found to be honored throughout the world. For example, the mother and child worship. In Egypt, it's Isis and Osiris. Isis and Osiris. In Rome, it's Fortuna and Jupiter. Jupiter. In Greece it's Aphrodite and Eros. And also in Rome it's Venus and Cupid. Not the fifties and sixties songs from before, remember? All right. I don't want to have to sing them to you. And then lastly, Mary and the baby Jesus. Now why do I bring Mary and the baby Jesus up? I reference this because of Mary's role according to the Catholic Church, as co-redemptrix. This is what she is known as in the Roman Catholic Church, as the co-redemptrix with Jesus. In other words, a co-redeemer. Now, the Bible tells us very clearly that only Messiah is our Redeemer. Only Messiah is our Savior. And yet, uh, there's, uh, I, there was this big long quote, I was going to bring it, but... Uh, I decided that I would try to paraphrase it a little bit. But anyway, this one priest or whatever he was, Liguri, I believe his name was, he writes that God actually assigned Mary to be co-redemptrix and, and assigned that all who believe would see her as the one now to make the decisions of, of, of great importance for the church. Mary, not Jesus. So I want to close because of time. I want to close with the words of Mary. Because I think we should hear from Mary. Because Mary is someone we should respect very much because she was chosen by God to be the one Jewish girl to bring Messiah into this world. Well, she has something to say. And I think you need to listen to what it is. And we'll close with this tonight. Luke 1, verses 46 through 55, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, which takes all of the attention off of her. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Now the minute she says Savior, do you know who she's talking about? Jesus, her son. Because in the Jewish tradition, Messiah is Savior. And God alone is Savior. But Jesus is Savior. So Jesus is God. And so she knows this. And she says, My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for He has regarded the lowly state. Hey, she wants to stay there. Down here, with us. Do we not have a lowly state? In and of ourselves, I mean, you know, who we are. She says, he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. Oh, she's a servant. Not a redeemer. A servant. For behold, henceforth... All generations will call me blessed. Blessed because I was chosen by God to do what I'm doing and what I had to do. For He who is mighty... Now notice the emphasis. He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is His name. Not mine. His. And His mercy... Notice the, ad, the, the adverbs here. His mercy is on those who fear Him. From generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. By the way, do you know who the arm of the Lord is? The right arm of the Lord is Jesus. We'll talk about that soon. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel stop. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His seed forever. the woman that Antichrist hates will use whatever he can to deceive the nations and the peoples of this earth religiously, politically, spiritually and otherwise. Mary, she says, He has done great things. He is the focus. Not me. He. And when she talks about her Savior, how strong that statement is, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior which tells us she needed a Savior. A co-redeemer, it's, it's, it's not possible to be a co-redeemer and still need a Savior. You, Jesus didn't need to be saved. Mary did. And she acknowledged it in her prayer. This is called the Magnificat. She magnifies the Lord. And so should we. All right, now, next week, uh, we'll get back to work. All right. Just a lot of things, a little filling in of some gaps, filling in of some issues. With those things in mind, I think we'll be able to get out of chapter 17, get into chapter 18 next time, or at least the following next week. Um, hope this has been helpful. Shall we pray?